0: have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. We now enter into the next stage officially of our story. We are leaving the book of the generations of Abraham behind. We will be moving into the book of the generations of Isaac and of Jacob. Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 25. We'll be focusing on the last half of this chapter, but we'll begin our reading in chapter 25 at verse 1. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative, and that means it is authoritative over you and me. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient for a people in need of God's grace. Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keterah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephaph, Epher, Hanak, Ebedah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Kedarah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but, the sons of his, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastwards to the east country." These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the first of Ishmael, firstborn of Ishmael. And Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. The daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram. The sister of Laban the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided." One shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright now? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised His birthright. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that You would be with us this morning, that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would teach us to trust You, that You are in control. This we ask, O Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, we have now changed the venue, as it were, of our story in Genesis. We are now moving from Abraham as the central focus and figure to his son Isaac, who will appear on the stage briefly. And then we are now introduced this morning to Jacob, a character who will take us through to about the final third of the book, in which his son Joseph will become the main figure. And so we have over this great span of this book of Genesis so many figures that we know well from the Old Testament of Adam and of Noah, of Enoch, of Methuselah, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve patriarchs, especially Joseph. All different men, different sorts of men with different families, but there is one thing that is consistent throughout all of this. It is that for all of them, their God is the true and living God. And He is the same sovereign God for each and every one of them. He is consistent throughout all of this book. For you see, the Lord does not change. He is sovereign and He is in control. And we will see evidence of that this morning. And it is my prayer that as we look at that, we will be encouraged. Encouraged to know that our Lord is sovereign, not just back in Bible times, but today. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus Christ is king in the voting booth? Have you thought about the fact that Jesus Christ is king in your marriage and in your parenting? You see, the triune God of the universe is the sovereign king over all. What I would like us to see this morning are three things. First, we will see what it is like and what we need to do to have faith in a sovereign God. To believe and trust in a sovereign God. And then secondly, we will see the choice of a sovereign God. Because if God is sovereign, then God gets to choose. Those two things go together. And the third thing that we will see is is that this does not change the fact that we have responsibility before a sovereign God. Faith, choice, and responsibility. Let's begin by looking at the faith in a sovereign God that is displayed here in chapter 25. We see here that both Abraham and now his son and descendants continue to follow the promise of God that was given to him. And what we need to remember is following the promise of God does not always look like some kind of grand, dramatic, spiritual thing. Following the promise of God is following the promise of God in the daily grind of life. You see, chapter 25 reminds us that life goes on. Sarah has died. Abraham either remarries again with another woman, Ketera, or she is a former wife who now is brought more into the scene now that Sarah is gone. Isaac is off living his life. He set up his own home. I'm sure that he comes by for Friday night dinners and visits with the family, but he's establishing his own home. He's married and he is seeking to serve the Lord in his own way. And Abraham begins to do something that we would be well advised to do. He begins to prepare to die. Now, I want you to notice that Abraham prepares to die not by sitting in a dark corner and being sad about the fact that the inevitable is coming. Abraham does not prepare to die by complaining or being afraid. Abraham prepares to die by doing what God has called him to do, by following the promise that God had given him so many years before. Abraham has lived in Canaan now 100 years. He has seen so much of the promise of God, and he now begins to act upon it. He acts to ensure that Isaac will be the heir of the promise. And he does three things, interestingly enough. The first thing he does in verse 5 is he designates Isaac as the heir. He gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, this is sort of a formula. It's the Bible's way of telling us that Abraham has designated in sort of a last will and testament in front of witnesses that Isaac is to be his heir. Because obviously he didn't give him every single thing he had because the next sentence tells us that he gave gifts to the other sons. The idea here is that he has formally designated Isaac as the heir. He also shows compassion upon his other sons. He gives them gifts so that they will be able to be supported. He knows that the promise is through Isaac, but that does not permit him to treat others in the world in a bad fashion. We need to understand that so often we think about the fact of what the church has been promised and the mission of the church, and we use that as an excuse to act in a miserable and lousy fashion toward our neighbors. The Bible says that's not how we are to live. The third thing that Abraham does is he removes any threat, humanly speaking, to the promise. He gives gifts to his other sons, and he sends them away. He will have no competition. And so Abraham prepares for death and dies, and he dies in a showcase of keeping God's promises. The Lord has given him a full and satisfying life. 175 years, full of years, the Bible says. Satisfied. 100 years in Canaan. And Abraham is gathered to a place of rest, gathered to the place of his fathers. And then notice the great blessing that God gives to Abraham's family, not in spite of his death, but because of it. Do you see what happens after Abraham dies? In verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. The death of Abraham is the occasion of the reuniting of the warring brothers. They come together, bound by their love for Abraham. We need to understand that as we live our lives, the things that we do can be used for peace and harmony. We can bring people together. That's what Abraham is doing here, even in his death. He's following the promise, but he's doing more than following the promise. He is also following his Lord. You see, Isaac now follows the Lord God. He has taken Abraham's place. Ishmael is off the scene. That becomes clear in verses 12 through 18. It's a, a bit of a history lesson. We learn about the Arabian tribes. And Ishmael goes off. And he is successful, even as God promised to Abraham. Nations will come from him. And Isaac begins now to find his own place in the world, completely out from the shadow of his father. He settles in at Beer La Roy. This is an important lesson for us as well. You see, we must also strike out on our own for the Lord. There will come a day, perhaps it seems so far off for those of you that are teenagers or in your 20s, when you will be completely in charge of everything that you have. Mom and dad will not be able to tell you or force you to do anything. Now for mom and dad, that day sounds like it's about 15 minutes around the corner. But the question then that comes to us is when you are not forced to come to church because that's where the car is coming, will you prioritize worshiping the Lord? When you are not compelled to sit around family worship and read your scriptures and pray, will you do so? When you strike out on your own Will the faith that is your own consume your life? Or will you cling to the vestiges of the faith of your parents and grandparents and hope that that's enough? You see, Isaac knows that the promise is his and he must seize it with both hands. He must seek the Lord and follow Him. And following the Lord is not an easy thing to do. There, there are all sorts of troubles that surround Isaac. Isaac. There are reminders of the conflicts that are to come. In verse 18, we see again Ishmael settling in Egypt over against his kinsmen. And in verse 20, we are reminded that his wife's family comes from Aramea. They are Arameans. Israel will be fighting them for centuries to come. And when his wife finally conceives, there is is a pain and a difficulty that comes to it. But right now, she is barren. And Isaac might be tempted to look at God and say, God, why me? I mean, my father and mother waited forever to have a child. Why are you putting me through the same thing? And you see, Isaac could be tempted to fall for the lie of the perfect life. And you see, Satan wants you to be deceived in this way. See, so many of us think the only thing Satan wants is to push us down and to degrade us. No, there's another way that Satan lies to you. He tells you that you deserve more, that your life should be better. And it isn't because it's God's fault. You should have all the money you need. You should have all the health you want. You should have all the happiness that you deserve. These are lies from the enemy. They seek to put a wedge between us and God. And so Isaac, as he is faced with this, how will he respond to the trials and troubles in his life? Look with me at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord. For his wife. Because she was barren. Isaac responded unlike his father. He is greater than his father. He didn't find a handmaid. He didn't try and make a solution. He is experiencing the same difficulty. But you see, Isaac had listened. He had listened to his father Abraham. Who probably told him week upon week... Month upon month, year upon year, Isaac, you are a miracle blessing from the Lord. We didn't always trust the Lord. We tried to go our own way. But when we sought the Lord, he answered our prayers. Isaac heard that and he prays. Isaac learned he didn't make the same mistake that Abraham and Sarah made. He responds with patience and he goes to the Lord. And more than that even, Isaac learned and now he teaches. There's a little preposition here. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. But the word here, for, can also mean in front of. And I think Moses is telling us that deliberately. Isaac did not go off somewhere... Only in the quiet of his closet and pray there. No, Isaac prayed in front of his wife because he wanted his wife to pray as well. He wanted to teach her to have the kind of faith that he wanted to have. He wanted to lead in his family. God blesses these efforts. Men, are you leading in your homes? Are you encouraging your wives? Are you encouraging your children? And by leading, I don't just mean directing traffic. I don't just mean sending down dictates. I mean, are you setting an example? Are you encouraging your family so that they long to be with the Lord? And when Isaac does this act of prayer, God answers him. And as God so often does, he answers beyond anything we would expect. Isaac's just hoping for a son. Well, God doesn't do things by half measures, does He? He sends twins. A double blessing. And even this joy then brings more challenge to the family of Isaac and Rebekah. The twins begin then to fight in her womb. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this if you've never been a pregnant woman. So, I will try only from the Hebrew words. But... This is not just merely the baby is kicking. Can you feel the baby? The language here is very vivid. It's it's said that the, the children struggled within her. They struggled together. And the word there is the same word that is used for crush and oppress. It's a very violent, active word. Yeah, see, some ladies here are wincing. So much so that Rebecca, who has waited decades, for a child, looks at the Lord and she says, Lord, why me? What are you doing to me? You see, struggle here occurs even in the midst of joy. This is what it means to trust and have faith in a sovereign God. And the next thing that we see is the choice of this sovereign God. For Rebecca is hurting, she is smarting, she is also confused by what is going on. And so she goes to the Lord. She's learned from Isaac. When things are bad, go to the Lord. And she inquires of the Lord in prayer and she gets this couplet, a prophecy, an oracle from the Lord. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So what we get here then is not what we expect, is it? We had thought it was going to be two children. Now we hear it's, it's going to be two nations. It's actually better than what we expect. But at the same time, it's, it's also worse than what we expect. Because these two children, these two nations will be divided. They will struggle together. And there's also something we don't expect that's different. It's not the natural order of things for the younger to serve the older. Is it? The firstborn is the heir. But yet remember, Isaac himself is not the firstborn. (coughs) He's the firstborn of Sarah, but he's not Abraham's firstborn son. God has decreed that this is how it will be so. It is not what we expect. But you see, the other thing is, it is not what we deserve. Our first glance as we look at this story is to look at it and shake our heads and say what? Well, that's just not fair. Why doesn't Esau get to be the person, the man through whom the line comes? Why does not Esau is the firstborn. This just isn't fair. Is there any redress? Where can I sue? It's just not fair. But if we think about it, actually, what did we deserve anyway? What did Esau and Jacob deserve anyway? Did they deserve to be born into the line of the promise? Did they deserve, did they earn The word of God that was found in this family? Did they earn the health that they were to have? No. All of that comes by the grace of God. What had either one done? There's an easy answer to that. Absolutely nothing. So much nothing that Paul takes this passage and he uses it as the illustration of illustrations. For God's sovereign election. He says, you think it depends on you? You think that you can tell God? You think God is sitting up in heaven somewhere wringing his hands? Saying, well I hope that they can come to believe in me. I hope they want to read my word. I hope things work out okay in the end. Paul says, you're like Jacob and Esau. Not only had they not done anything, they hadn't even been born yet. They weren't even able to think about doing something, let alone having done something. Paul says this very clearly in Romans 9. He says, beginning in verse 1, "...I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh." They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He begins then to say that this is all of God's will. He says in verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose might stand in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You see, all of it depends on God. God is sovereign. I have news that I have to break to you. You ready for it? You're not God. You're not in charge. You can't do everything. You don't know everything. You don't deserve anything. It is all the grace of God. You see, God has His purposes. God gets to choose. And His purposes are good. His purposes are wise. And you see, when God gets to choose, that prevents boasting. Jacob could not boast in what he received. Isaac and Rebekah could not boast in what they had. You see, it is all the choice of God. And if this were not true, then we would be tempted to place ourselves above others. Well, I'm going to heaven because... I was smart enough to read my Bible and believe it. I'm going to heaven because I made a better choice than those people over there. I'm going to be with the Lord because I've done so many good things and He wants to put His love upon me. You see, that's the devil's religion. The devil's religion is to focus upon me, 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 me. The word of the Lord says, look to the Lord. He's in control. And He's good. Oh, He's so good. And He's wise. And He's powerful. And He deserves all of your honor and your worship. This is the God that we serve. His choices are not the choices of some random computer spitting out cards picking people at random. No, He knows all things. He has created all things and He makes us who we are. His choice to set His love upon a people, upon Jacob rather than Esau, is rooted in His good and perfect character. And we do not know all His ways. So often we concern ourselves with why is there pain and misery in the world? Why does God not choose this person? When the much better and much more practical question would be, why is there any pleasure in this world of sin? Why does God choose anyone? Why does he not give all of us what we deserve? The next time that you are tempted to complain, to whine, to moan, to shake your fist at God and say, I don't have what I deserve. Let your next thought be, praise the Lord. For I am not burning an eternal hellfire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But you see, God in His mercy and His grace sets His love upon His people and draws them to Himself. This encourages us. The last thing that we see very briefly as a result of this is that if we trust the Lord in His sovereign choice, we must also know that that does not excuse us from all responsibility. We cannot walk through the world like automatons saying, well, it's all up to God. I can do whatever I want. No, we have a responsibility before God and we see this. Esau and Jacob, whom the Lord had chosen before they were born, play out their character in front of us. Beginning in verse 29, Jacob is cooking something and Esau comes in from the field and he says, I need to have this. And we see the natural character of both Esau and Jacob play out. Esau is a a free-living, violent, rash man. He is a man who goes out and about and does what he wants. He is the worst of the caricatures of a macho man. Now, Jacob, we need to understand here, Jacob gets bad press from some commentators. They look at this and they say, he's a quiet man dwelling in tents. And they say, well, you know, Jacob is a wimp. Look at him. He's cooking. Come on. Now, I don't know about you, But there's not much more that's manly than a man around a grill or a campfire cooking. It doesn't say he's making quiche with an apron on He's a man's man as well. But you see, he's a quiet man. And that word for quiet means peaceful, complete, whole. He is a man who knows who he is and is comfortable with it. And he wants to lead. He wants to lead in his family. He wants to lead in spiritual things. He has long-term things on his mind. So when Esau runs in, all out of breath, and says the Hebrew equivalent of, I've got to gulp down some of that red stuff. The red stuff. Give me the red stuff. Who's this guy? Jacob says, I'll have the birthright, please. Why? Because the one who has the birthright gets more money, more stuff? Maybe. But the other and more important thing about the birthright is the man who has the birthright leads the family. It is his family. He is the patriarch. He sets the pace. He determines where they will go. Very bluntly, he determines what God they will worship. The true one or the false one. And so... Jacob sees this, and when Esau runs in on impulse, he can't even get out a good sentence. You miss some of it in the English translation. He asks for the red stuff twice. He repeats it, and he doesn't just say, let me eat it. He's not going to be picking up a fork. This is an odd word for eating. It's the kind of word that you see when someone takes food in their hands and slaps it into their mouth, and it runs down their face. He's a mess. He'd rather have. Now, honestly, folks, have any of you ever eaten lentil stew? (laughs) We're not talking about filet mignon here. I mean, this is not exactly fine dining. He doesn't even know what it is. He just wants the red stuff. And he's so focused on it that that's why he's called Edom. Because Edom is a word that sort of means red or sounds like red. And you see, the point here is, his character comes out that he could care less about God, care less about the promise, care less about the birthright. All he wants is what's in front of him right there. And you see, he lives out the, the consequences of God's choice. This shows us again, you see, we often think God chooses an election And the poor people who wind up going to hell, begging God to choose them, if he'd only chosen me, I would love him. I would have loved him forever. But it's not in my control because God didn't choose me. No, those people are like Esau. Heaven? Oh, there's a bit of grass over here. Oh, how about to live eternally with God? Oh, there's some lovely filth over here. You see, the focus is totally on the things that are not of God. We even see this in his final action. It's very interesting. Look at the last sentence with me. The last verse. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went. In the Hebrew, those are just verbs. He doesn't think about it at all. He eats it. He gulps it down. He sold the birthright. What does it matter to me? And he goes on his way. He doesn't even give it a second thought. There's, there's no repentance here. There is no concern here at all. He doesn't care at all about spiritual things. So the question then comes to you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if God has set His electing love upon you, are you showing in your responsibility before Him A love for spiritual things. Because you see, if you act like Esau, then God has not put that love in your heart. If you're more concerned about the latest car, or the newest video game, or the biggest house, than you are about spiritual things, you need to look at yourself squarely in the mirror. Because you see, we have a responsibility before the living God. The content of our heart is played out in our lives. This text here teaches us and shows us that if we are blind to spiritual things, God will let us remain blind to spiritual things. And that is a fearful judgment. But if we are eager for spiritual things like Jacob, even if we don't do things exactly right, This is not exactly textbook Christian behavior here. The old switcheroo. Jacob will have a lot more of this, won't he? We'll see it. But God stays with him. Because you see, God does not call perfect people to himself. He calls sinners. That in a long and difficult and sometimes painful process, he molds into the image of his Son. Is that what you long for, for yourself? Then seek the Lord, and He will bless you with trials, with discipline, and ultimately with glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before You this morning, and we ask, O Lord, that You would show to us the responsibility that You have called us to. In Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would make us more aware of spiritual things. That we would long to be with you, O Lord. This we ask. In the name of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen.